0: still preaching through uh, Mark's Gospel and thinking about the role of faith, the explicit role of faith in the life of the disciples. And uh, we've got to chapter 11 of Mark's Gospel. And uh, I want to think with you today about faith-filled prayer or prayer for faithful days perhaps would be uh, equally as good. If you've got your Bibles, then we're going to start reading from Mark 11. Okay. As they approached Jerusalem... This is Jesus and all the crowds. They came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. And Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you. And just as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say... Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they'd cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it wasn't the season for figs. And he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and wouldn't allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, isn't it written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this. They began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him. Because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. And Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if you say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and don't doubt in your heart, but believe what you say will happen, it will be done for you. Therefore... I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it, and it will be yours. When you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Well, the little bit I um, am concentrating on, really, is that verse. I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it, and it will be yours. If you're the sort of person who has uh, Christian bookmarks or posters or fridge magnets, that's the kind of uh, image that often goes behind that sort of text. It's kind of designed to encourage you. And when you read it, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it, and it will be yours. It can sound really easy, can't it? It can sound as though all you need to do is say, well, I would like this, and then somehow screw up enough belief to say, I'm going to get it. And war betide anybody who says, are you sure? Somehow it's just about screwing up enough belief girding it all up and saying to God, God, I really want this, and I'm believing you're going to give it me, and you better had. And um, there's a rich tradition of people who would suggest that's how prayer works. If you go on Amazon and just type in randomly how to get what you want from God in prayer, you will get loads of books come up. And people buy them in their thousands which is irritating, when you've written other books that... <laughs> it's a long story, Amanda. I'm, I'm thinking of writing a new one. Um, and, and so this is the problem though, isn't it? Because Jesus does say this. He does say it. But, because some of us are tarnished with cynicism, We begin to wonder, yeah, and our response is this, really? Really? And if on the one sort of poll, you've got people who go, just ask and you'll get it. On the other poll, you've got those who go, no, you probably won't. So it's not even worth asking. So therefore... You sigh and regret, and you might ask, well, what's the point? And the danger, the danger for some of us is that you end up living without asking God for anything, and actually, you can end up as a sort of like a virtual or a functional atheist, just trying to get by through life, but no longer believing that the God you ask is a God who actually engages with you, a God who gives you if you have faith you can say to this mountain be moved and it will be so and some of us say well we've not got faith for that but we'll we'll start with i don't know a paper clip um if that paper clip can move from here to there and we'll screw up enough courage and um it doesn't happen and we go well it's just not possible so what i want to do is take this seriously Jesus does say whatever you ask for believe and it'll be given you but Jesus doesn't trade in fridge magnets he doesn't trade in slogans he doesn't trade in simplicities what happens is these sayings are in a bigger context and the context is really important for us to understand what Jesus might have meant when he offered this approach to prayer so if you've got your Bible or your phone, for those of you that are on a trendy cutting edge and you're playing solitaire, <laughs> just, just see what happens. It's in verse 22 where Jesus says, have faith in God. I tell you, if you say to this mountain, go through yourself and see and don't doubt, it'll, it'll happen. But look at verse 21. What? Does Mark suggest is the catalyst for Jesus saying this about prayer? Well, it's Peter walking by a withered fig tree. What was a withered fig tree? Well, you heard me say it. Jesus um, has, uh, has come across this fig tree and it's covered in leaves. And it looks healthy and it looks fruitful. It looks like... It should bear fruit and Jesus goes Jesus is hungry so he goes to find the fig tree and there's no figs on it and so Jesus curses the fig tree and the next day they walk past and, they, and Peter goes that fig tree it's not looking so good now is it and Jesus says if you have faith now it's kind of interesting isn't it because it feels like this is one of the weird things Jesus does. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but you read this and you think, Jesus, should you really be doing that sort of thing? <laughs> should you really be going around, and just because you didn't get figs, going, nobody's going to eat of you. If I can't have anything, nobody will have anything. Is that, is that Jesus? It doesn't sound like Jesus, does it? It doesn't sound like the Jesus that we meet elsewhere in the Gospels, but of course it is Jesus. And so you're asking, and you're supposed to ask, why did you do that? Well, perhaps if we'd have been behind him on the day, because it's interesting, isn't it? Peter doesn't say, why did you do it? He just went, wow, you did it. (laughs) And um, if you'd been with Peter and behind him on that day, you would have understood something about the fig tree, because... On coins and on uh, sort of images on temples and things like that, uh, a fig tree was often a symbol of the nation. It was a symbol of Israel. And suddenly you might have understood what Jesus was doing. It's like an acted out parable. I came looking to a, f- to, a f- to a tree that was covered in green leaves and shoots and looked like, but I came looking for fruit, but there was nothing there. It had all the appearance of fruitfulness, but nothing in reality. And so Jesus curses it, not because he's petulant, but he curses it because it's actually an acted-out parable. He's, He's suggesting something because it's in the context when Jesus rides into Jerusalem. Palm Sunday. And we've mentioned it two or three times this morning already, haven't we? But if you, you know that bit I read from the beginning of chapter 11, what you have going on here is just an image of Jesus in control. As they approached Jerusalem, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying, "'Go to the village, just as you enter, it.'" You'll find a cult tied there. No one's ever ridden it. Untie it, bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly.'" And um, it's, it's, so the equivalent would be, if you, if you just... You know, it's the obvious equivalent. But if, um, if you were organising something and then you sent a friend of yours to say, go and get me the car. It's parked outside. Go and get Frank's car. It's parked outside Frank's house. And um, you'll get there and um, he'll say, what are you doing in my car? And uh, we'll say... I was going to say, Mary needs it, but then that happens so often (laughs) that that's not really much of a code, is it? Let's be honest, you just shrug your shoulder and say, hey. But if it was Arthur, I'd say, Arthur needs it. Jesus comes and he says, you'll go into a village and you will say, I want that colt. And they'll say, why are you taking the colt? And they say, the Lord needs it, and he'll bring it back. Now, some people want to say, well, actually, that's just like a... It's like a word of knowledge. It's like Jesus just knew everything. But other people are going, no, actually, this is organised. Jesus has gone before. I like the idea of it not being so much a word of knowledge, but actually Jesus organising it. I like the idea that somehow, somewhere, Jesus has gone ahead and actually worked out where the cult is, the fact that no one's ridden ridden on it, he's organised with the owners of the cult saying, I'm going to need this, but I'll send it back to you. Don't worry about it, lads. Because the, the, the... um, entry into Jerusalem is an organized, in control demonstration of kingly power. Jesus doesn't need a cult to get into Jerusalem because he can't make the last bit by walking. He's not tired. It's not like, oh, I just can't go a step further. Or let me get on the cult. This is an organized moment. In fact, all of that's going to happen next is. Hugely, highly organized. Jesus is in control. People put cloaks on the road. They come with branches. They shout, Hosanna. A statement is being made. A king has come in to the capital. Now, we understand all about highly symbolic events. Earlier in the week, two old people got together. It was the Irish president. Michael Higgins and the Queen. First time he was invited to come to speak to Parliament. It was the first time they've met in that formal way. On one level, our Queen, who is this symbol of lots of things but actually has very little executive authority, She doesn't make things happen she's a symbol of things but when these two people get together and when she says in her speech today is a sign that the past needs to be dealt with because a new future needs to be created it's a vast huge symbol that deals with pain of the past and the enmity of the past it's a massive symbol about what does forgiveness looks like, look like? What does a future look like? On the outside, it looks like two older people getting together, but everybody who sees it goes, wow, that's a moment. We understand about symbols. And Jesus on a donkey going into Jerusalem is a massive symbol. The king is here. The next day, sorry, that night, verse 11, he goes into the temple courts. He looks around everything, but because it's late, he goes to Bethany with the 12. And it was the next day as he's going back into the temple. That's when he saw that fig tree. That's when he said, it's got the image, it's got the look of fruitfulness, but actually it's not bearing fruit. And and he curses it. And he goes into Jerusalem. And he begins to drive out and overturn the tables. People have spoken a lot about this, haven't we? And in some ways of talking about it, it feels like some people give the impression that Jesus just lost it. He was just angry. But I'm not at all convinced that he was just angry. Not in that uncontrollable way. Not in that a flipped moment. I think this is another demonstration I think he is angry, but he doesn't do it the night before. Did you notice? This is not uncontrollable. This is a demonstration. I'm going to go in there. I'm going to do something to demonstrate the fact that the king has come to the temple. And I'm going to say, you have made this place something it should not have been. You have taken the things that God gave you, this place, this temple. And, and, and how the Jews understood the temple, by the way, this was where God met with us. This is like one of the, it's, it's the holy place. It's, we've been talking about it in different contexts recently, but for some people, they talk about thin places where God seems to be much easier to encounter. Well, the temple was the thinnest of the thin places. It was the holy of the holy places. It's like, God's here. What do you do with it? What have you done with it? People are selling stuff. You've excluded people. It was supposed to be a place of prayer, but you've made it a place of trade. It was so much more than this. In fact, Jesus uses the phrase, you've made it a den of thieves. And on your Bibles, if you'll see it, it'll have a little footnote and it'll tell you where that phrase comes from. It's Jeremiah chapter seven. And in Jeremiah, it's Jeremiah coming and saying, you've done, to the first temple, you've done exactly the same. That's what Jeremiah was saying. You you think, Jeremiah will say to his people, (coughs) you think that simply saying the temple, the temple, the temple, that will protect us. You think just identifying yourself with God will be enough for you not to be obedient. But let me tell you, Jeremiah says, it's not enough. You'll lose it. And Jesus comes and he cleanses the temple, cleans it up. He said, the people that you think can't come in, the Gentiles, it's supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. The people you don't think are any good, those are the people that should have come. The thing it should have been about was prayer, about a relationship with God, but you have stopped that. And Jesus is saying, your religion won't save you. This was the question that you were looking at last week when Jesus asks two groups of people, what do you want me to do for you? One group of people were his disciples and and they wanted glory and the other person was Bartimaeus who wanted to see. And last week you were asked, well, what would you answer? And this week we're there again. Jesus has demonstrated that he's a king coming into Jerusalem. He's demonstrated he's the king of the temple. And he's coming in and he's demonstrated that just religion's not enough. It's not enough just to have the appearance of looking good. And then he says, I tell you, if you say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and don't doubt in your heart, but believe That what you say will happen, it will be done for you. Therefore, I tell you whatever you ask for in prayer, believe you have received it and it will be yours. I wonder what you've prayed about this week. This is the frustration of prayer, I think. You've probably prayed for people and for situations. People who are in situations that seem to be desperate and for situations that seem not to change. And the frustration is that you pray and you pray and it feels like situations don't change. And that's where the frustration comes. Because then you said, oh God, I thought. And we can, if we're not careful, end up accusing God. Somehow God doesn't keep his side of the bargain. But it's not that God isn't acting, it's that actually God is, in some way, he binds himself to his own rules of engagement. Jesus had the same problem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would that you would have come to me. But you didn't. In the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, uh, Father, if there's any way this cup could not be taken, please, I don't, want to, I don't want to drink from this cup. This cup of crucifixion, if there's any other way, Jesus, and yet, not my will, but yours. When we pray for people, the thing you've got to remember is that God doesn't invade, he invites God doesn't invade, He invites. And then you go, well, what's the point of praying? Well, you pray because you're a disciple. You're a prey because actually you're learning what it means to be obedient to Jesus in this place, at this moment. I'm learning how it means to follow Jesus and in the context I'm in with people who are stuck or situations that are stuck, Jesus, how do I live and what do you want of me? Jesus says, if you have faith, you say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea. What was the mountain? Lots of people think that when Jesus was saying it, what Jesus would have been doing would have been pointing. It wasn't like just a metaphor. He was actually pointing to where the temple was because the temple was built on a mountain. And it's like Jesus is saying to his listeners, the thing that nobody could ever imagine is that that, that huge temple, that impregnable fortified place, that won't change And Jesus points to it and says, but actually, if you have faith, you can say, go throw yourself in the sea. And if you don't don't doubt, but believe, it will be done. Therefore, whatever you ask, believe. Maybe Maybe the problem with prayer is when it's been diluted and it's been trivialized. Jesus didn't come just to give us everything we want. Jesus came to recruit us on his kingdom. Maybe the challenge is actually how the prayers are fulfilled. For Jesus, the temple would be destroyed, but actually it was through his crucifixion and resurrection. The temple would be destroyed in A.D. 70. The Romans would come and everything that people thought would never happen, it did, it it just fell. But Jesus, who came to liberate people, he has to go through the way of crucifixion. He has to go away through the, the pain and the cost of all of that. And this is what I was thinking. The moment you start praying for situations to change, The moment you start praying for people is the moment you start paying a cost for the very answer to the things you want to pray for. Jesus models it himself. It's not just saying to God, God, could you sort it out? It's actually somehow God captures us into it and we walk the journey with him. Do you remember Miss World competitions? Some of you, I mean clearly, those of us that can't remember our 21st, we all remember Miss World. Do you remember, they, they, they had these poor women all had to sort of, all had to queue up and the big question was, you know, what, what do you really want to see? And if you didn't say world peace, you were never gonna be Miss World. And it became this sort of like glib thing. What do you really want? I want world peace. And Sometimes I wonder whether there's a sense in which it becomes this similar kind of prayer. God, bless everybody everywhere. God, heal everybody who's sick. God, sort out every situation that's broken. Amen. And we walk away to our own lives. I think that the moment we start praying is the moment we start praying in a conversation with God that does bring change, but one of the changes it brings is in us. Jesus, who says anything you ask, actually will pay for that in his own life. The moment you start praying, you're starting praying with God, to God, for the sake of the world. And it's not like you can stand apart anymore, but you're actually included in on it. And there is a cost. There is... A process for what we're doing is we're praying for revolution we're praying that things will change and revolutionaries never know the end of the script may your kingdom come may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven where that text that we've read this morning leads is Jesus looks so in control as the king, doesn't he? Entering, saying to, wither, to, to fig trees, going into temples and cleansing. But from that moment on, things are going to be done to him. They're going to take him. They're going to crucify him. He will be raised from the dead. I wonder whether those of us who long to see our prayers being answered... We're left with not only the promise that that prayer does change things, but actually a reminder that somehow we're wrapped up into the process of how God changes. It's not simply being Miss World going, God, I'd love world peace. And then saying, God, why haven't you done it? And if there's any doubt in that, that last bit says this. And Jesus seems to have always included this when he talks about prayer. If, while you're praying, you don't forgive those who have hurt you, then your prayers will not be heard. And for some of us, that's a big deal. And that's the moment where we start to get involved in our own prayers. Because suddenly we can't just be on the outside going, we've got 2020 vision, we see it all clearly, we are all right. It's actually, no, we come and we're people who are in danger of being bitter and we think we've got 2020 vision, but actually we've got people we need to release as well. The very act of praying is a moment where you start to say, I'm releasing some of the people. I might even want to say, some of the people I'm praying for. I wonder whether sometimes it's it's easier to pray that people will change than it is to say, Jesus, will you help me forgive them? (coughs) Because if they change, they're not going to hurt me anymore. But actually, to forgive means that I'm engaged in this process. So where does this land, finally? Finally. I wonder, and I've said this before, it's not mine, it's it's not unique to me, somebody else wrote it, and they said this. If you looked at all your prayers over this last week, would anybody else benefit except you and your family? How wide are your prayers? If prayer is a conversation with God that brings change, how wide are your prayers? Secondly, for those of you that pray half-heartedly, and pff, might work, who knows. You know those sort of prayers that we end up like the equivalent of non-Christians, touch wood. Those superstitious prayers, Be lovely if. But actually, what if prayer is you and I being drawn into the heart of God, a heart that says, will you walk this road with me? Will you pay the cost? Will you begin the process That Jesus has walked. The king who allows himself to be crucified. The king who cleanses the temple and yet has to see that the temple won't move to him. The temple doesn't change. The king who goes to his own people and his own people reject him and yet he goes, I'm still going to walk. I'm still going to walk. The people who go, I'm ready to forgive. If you have faith, that face sounds more difficult. And that face seems to me like the faith that we're called to ask for. Let's pray together. And uh, maybe the folks can come and you can come back to your music because we're going to be helped as we do. I'd love it if you can, if you um, would be willing to stand. I'm going to ask the Spirit just to come and rest upon us, and for Him to begin to shape our own lives and our thinking and the way we respond to God and the communication we have with him. The truth is, it's easy to make people feel guilty about praying because none of us feel we do it well enough or long enough or often enough. But the outcome of this is not to feel guilty about the way we pray, but is actually just to invite us back into a conversation with God that changes things some of you are praying really hard for your own wider family because you've got stuff going on there that's really causing difficulty and, uh, and you know that it's also causing you you're paying a cost for the, your own prayers because you're concerned and you're desperate and the price you're paying in that sense is the price that it costs to engage with God as you engage, as you intercede for your own family. Some of you were praying about workplaces and situations that don't seem to change there. And again, we're called to forgive and we're called to release and we're called to pay the price for God to do his work of bringing the kingdom. So this morning, maybe the best thing we can do is offer our lives to him and say, here we are, Lord. Touch our own lives, we pray. Let's just do that. Holy Spirit come and rest on us we pray. We just would want to invite you to come. Lord I pray you'll take the stuff that's been said and the, the helpful stuff you'd really enable us to to wrestle with and stuff that's not helpful that'll go but Lord that stuff that, you'd really want to call us back to thank you invite us into this relationship with you and Lord we want to say yes to you again come Holy Spirit we pray